Welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Classicist is Victor Davis Hansen, the Morton and Elia Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, we're a, a little over a month away from the presidential election, just had the first presidential debate earlier this week. Fair to say, I think that it was unlike any debate we've ever seen before. <laughs> <laughs> the, con- the conventional wisdom right now is that uh, the president's in trouble, that the polling across the swing states is bad, that the debate was a negative for the president. You've been pretty consistently bullish on President Trump's prospects for re-election thus far. H- how does the race look to you now? Oh, I think it's dead even. I mean, we're still two weeks behind the 2016 Access Hollywood bombshell that still went off on October, I think, 15th. So, and they all declared Trump was dead. So, there's a lot of ways to adjudicate it. Um, the debate, even I, I, I look, you know, I always read both sides. So, I don't look at CNN for some reason. But when you look at the 538, Nate Silver basically said Trump is behind and he's no more behind or he's no more ahead than after the debate. If you look at some weirdo uh, polls, people think he did better, but I don't think it changed anything at all. I do think it's ironic that for such a fruit fight that if Biden really does believe he won, he should want to do it again and again. But the next day he looked like he, he was Muhammad Ali after a rope adult fight, you know, with somebody he was worn out and tired and Trump looked like he was, you know, on some type of youth drug, he was phonetic. So it's hard to know. I had a lot of criticism of the debate because um, I think strategically, uh, if you look at the transcript, and I did very carefully, I think Trump won on the issues. He gave complete answers, etc. But I don't know why he, after that first five-minute really masterful opening, he wanted to keep interrupting. I think somebody who maybe his handlers had advised him to rattle Biden. But when you look at interviews scripted and choreographed as they are with Biden by sympathetic journalists, they always interrupt him. Every time he's got the wrong word or he's drifting off into la-la land, they come in and say, that's what you meant. And then he's back on track. So I don't know why Trump wouldn't just allow Biden a minute or so to try to, you know, give us an exegesis of something. But he didn't. And then the effect, the effect of that was that it looked like that his choppiness or his interruptions, uh, Biden's interruptions or choppiness or incoherence was due to Trump's interruptions. And I'm not sure they were, but Trump aided that. I think that'll probably be aware of him next time. And then I was very critical of the moderator, Chris Wallace. I don't like the, I don't think any of us like that gotcha stuff that his father uh, sort of institutionalized Mike Wallace. The idea you get somebody in front of the camera, then you spring on, didn't you? And, you know, 1692 or 1488 or 1821 <laughs> do something. And what do you say about that? And then the, the, the cameras glare and then you cut them off. I think the metaphor is you, you get your spurs on and you, know, you get a guy on the back of a Bronco and then you put a rod up his anus, the horse's anus, and then the, the thing 
bucks. And then you say, oh, you've got two minutes to calm it down. And then you, that's it. So why try to provoke a candidate if you're not going to press them on completing an answer and then just cut them off? So I don't think that was good. And then the symmetry, the idea was for every sin of Trump, we'll have a sin of Biden's, but they were all asymmetrical. So think about the scandal of the day question. Well, Donald Trump, taxes, we heard that ad nauseum. So I'm thinking, well, obviously it's going to be another financial uh, parallel example. It's going to be Hunter Biden getting three and a half million. They just just close up. Nothing, nothing. Wallace didn't mention. Then I thought, you know, okay, we're going to go to race. So he's going to bring out the Charlottesville that Trump said there was fine people on both sides. And he's going to eliminate or cut out the qualifying next sentence. But of course, the white supremacists uh, and the Ku Klux Klan, these are bad people. I don't, he, he left that out, of course. So I thought, okay, he's going to give us another controversial Bidenism on race, like you ain't black, nothing. Goes back 30 years to some obscure predator, super predator quote, which was meaningless. And so, you know, I thought, okay, one more chance. He's going to talk about the election. So he said, didn't you say that you wouldn't necessarily accept the results? And Trump kind of fumbled around and said, well, you know, there's mail-in balloting and all this. And I thought, okay, now he's going to give this symmetrical, uh, embarrassing gotcha question. So he's going to say to Biden, you were in the Oval Office when you made a decision to monitor a transition figure in the Trump administration. You were in an administration that weaponized the DOJ, the FBI, and the uh, CIA to subvert a a uh, campaign and a transition transition based not only on a fabricated dossier, the Steele dossier, but one that employed probably the rantings and ravings of a known Soviet spy, a Russian spy that was working for the Brookings. Nothing. And so for all his little pieties about he was neutral and this was they were all yelling at each other, really he, he was the one that I think caused the chaos. It was like throwing a firecracker into a crowd and then standing back and had he been fair, had he been balanced, had he had symmetry, yeah, I think it would have been a lot easier. Had he not had gotcha, why didn't he just say to Biden, I'm going to give you two minutes, and I, I really insist on detail, or three minutes or four minutes, but just explain to me what you believe about the court packing idea or getting rid of the electoral college or adding two more states, and please be specific, and then Donald Trump, don't say anything, but you can comment. And then you can say to Donald Trump, I want you to explain exactly what you did or did not do with COVID. But they never, he never phrased the questions. It was always, you know, didn't you do something? And then it, it wasn't symmetrical in the severity of, of the gotcha question. But, uh, to that point, I mean, this debate was so combative that the substantive exchanges tended to get overshadowed. So one of them, which probably would have gotten more attention under more conventional circumstances, is the one you just mentioned, Joe Biden's refusal to answer the question on whether he'd support packing the Supreme Court if Republicans get Amy Coney Barrett on the bench. And this is all the more remarkable because during the primaries, Biden was open about the fact that he was against this. And so this this gets us to one of the paradoxes of this race, which is that Joe Biden, a man who has been in public life for almost 50 years, has now become devilishly hard to pin down in terms of what his actual agenda would be. How how do you read the tea leaves there? Well, you had a good point, Troy, because he was a moth to a flame whenever there was a camera or mic around. You couldn't shut him up. 
good old Joel from Scranton, he just talked. Bulgaria, that's where he was. Suddenly he was a virtual candidate. And the answer, it's got to be either A or B. Um, his inability to talk candidly or extemporaneously or without a script on a very explicit, to answer a very explicit question. It's got to be either A or B. A, that he's cognitively challenged, and while he can rest up and do whatever he needs for an hour and a half, the day in and the day in and the day in campaign wears on him, so he's got into his mind, you're just not going to talk about these things, because to do so is too complicated for you, you know. So if you say to Joe Biden, 62 years of 50 states, do you really want to change it? 150 years, Joe, that we've had nine justices on the court. 190 years, we've had a filibuster in the Senate. Uh, 233 years, we've had an electoral college. I don't think he would be able to to articulate that. And he'd go off on, you know, Trump's a coward or something. Or, and if they're not mutually exclusive, he made it, as we said, I used that term before, a Faustian bargain, and it was his job to carry a, an agenda that was completely repudiated, as you point out, in the primary. Nobody wanted the New Green Deal or the wealth tax or reparations or tearing down the border wall or Medicare for everybody or packing a court or getting rid of the other. And those candidates, even Bernie Sanders didn't win, but they saw Joe Biden as a centrist veneer uh, that could pay, that could be pasted over their agenda, and he was willing to go along with that to unite the party and get elected. And that's where he is now. He can't, he's in a straitjacket. He cannot say in that debate, I am for defunding the police. Because if he does, he thinks he's going to lose his Pennsylvania swing voter or Michigan swing voter. Or if he says, I am going to, excuse me, if he says, I am going to defund the police, he'll lose the swing voter. If he says, I'm not going to defund the police, then the left says, wait a minute. Why do you think we got a guy like you out of the closet and propped you up to carry us? That was part of the deal. And that, that same theory goes to everything, whether it's fracking or, you know, electoral college or the new green deal it was totally incoherent i read the transcript and i think i used that metaphor before or simile rather about the nixon kennedy debates nixon won on the transcript but on the optics and the atmospherics kennedy won trump won on if you read the there's a lot of crosstalk in in the printed text but he won but when you had him you know sort of grimacing and angry and his expression well while Biden was talking and trying to break in all the time, um, Biden actually sort of outfoxed him on that thing. He called him a clown. He called him a racist. He called him stupid. He's called him the worst president. This is unheard of in a debate, but that was lost. We talked on an episode during the summer about what you thought a winning message for the Trump campaign would look like at this point in the race. What themes do you think the president should be hitting? Well, I think he doesn't have a choice. He's going to have to say, this isn't about me. It's not about democratic governance or Republican governance. It's not about red state, blue state. This is about an existential change. Joe Biden, whether he's cognizant or not, cannot answer these questions because he's a prisoner of the hard left. And he wants to change the rules. He can't win according to the regular rules. He can't get this agenda across. So they want massive mail-in ballot, 
on balloting. They want open borders. They want changed demographics. They want no electoral college. They want no filibuster when they get in power. They want no uh, nine-person Supreme Court. They want a 16-year-old vote. They want Puerto Rico. They want structural changes so that they can win according to rules uh, that would have to be changed for their benefit because they cannot win. You, they, you won't vote for them under the present system. I think that's a very powerful. And they're going to change our traditions. They're going to change the names of things they already have. And they're going to make race absolutely essential to who you are and not incidental. I think if he frames it in that, that it's a Manichaean choice between traditional normative America and its successes and some radical new socialist project, I think he has a good chance. He's trying to do that, but um, we'll see. In my neighborhood, I've talked to a lot of people thinking they would have thought that Trump lost. They all thought he won. Sort of consistent with the Telemundo two-to-one snap after the debate poll that they did of their Spanish-speaking viewers. The last thing I'll ask you is how the politics of all this plays into the policy. So there's been a lot of agita over what the period around Election Day is actually going to look like. Came up in the debate the other night, the concerns about how long it's going to take to figure out the winner, whether the election is going to be disputed. There hasn't, as of yet, however, been a lot of talk about what that uncertainty might mean in terms of governing, By, by which I mean that any transitional period in American government creates opportunity for mischief amongst America's enemies. So regardless of who wins this election, you're probably going to have a truncated transition. doesn't matter as much, of course, if Trump is staying in office. But the focus during that time is going to be so much on the domestic scene that obviously brings with it the risk of taking our eye off the ball on foreign policy. So what issues overseas do we need to remain vigilant about while we're all distracted by the domestic scene? Well, we're, we're all looking at three countries. We're looking at Russia, and we're looking at China, and we're looking at Iran, and to a lesser extent, North Korea. But what's fascinating about this, and I, I understand that the next debate, or the third, is on foreign policy. This wasn't. But uh, when the left in general, and Biden in particular, say, Donald Trump has alienated our allies. Donald Trump has made a mess of everything. Then you, you say, and I've had a couple of debates and talked to people. I said, okay, let's just forget the rhetoric. I want you specifically, country by country, region by country, tell me what you would do differently. Okay, the Iran deal. Now, you want to go back to the Iran deal? Do you want to give more money to the theocracy? Do you want to help it get back on its feet after the COVID recession um, oil collapse? Is that what you want to do? Do you want you want to move that embassy in Israel back to Tel Aviv? Do you want to tell the Syrian Assad government, you guys are eventually going to get the Golan Heights? you want to tell the radical Palestinians, we're sorry we cut Donald Trump, cut off your money. We're going to give you that $700 million. We want to go tell the Emirates, uh, you know what? That was a bad idea to recognize Israel. Don't do it. Get 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 back. Are we going to go tell China? You know, we really don't believe in tariffs. That was a bad idea. And we, you know, your business with the re-education camps, the Wagers, and all that—that's your business. And we want to go back to reset again because they all keep saying Donald Trump is a captive of Russia. But from what we know, a Russian espionage person who claimed he was working within the confines of the Brookings Institute, familiar with many of the anti-Trump luminaries in the Ukrainian 
so-called impeachment scandal, we know that the Russians were manipulating uh, the election, but not for Donald Trump. And Hillary Clinton apparently was hoping to develop a false narrative of Trump collusion to hide her own problems with the, these leaked and illegal emails. Do we want to? We, do we want to go back to that Russian relationship reset under Mike McFaul and, and Barack Obama? Do we really want to say, you know, we're not going to sell you lethal weapons, Ukrainians? You're just not going to have anti-tank weapons. And you know, when you get mercenaries in Syria, we're going to let it go. We're not going to lower those sanctions on the oligarchs. We're not going to do that. And you know. If you want to go into another place besides Crimea and eastern Ukraine, like you did right after the Obama election, you go ahead and do it. I just don't think that's going to happen. Are we going to go reach out to the North Koreans and say, you're eating grass now. This is horrible. Donald Trump imposed these sanctions. You know what? We, we're going to go negotiate those nuclear weapons that are pointed apparently at Portland. So I, I, for all the talk, I just don't think they're going to be able to make a coherent, coherent argument that what Trump did was wrong and they want to change it. I know they're going to talk about it. And that was kind of a, a larger issue with Biden during the debate. He, he kept almost projecting. He said, 200,000 people have died on your watch. I'm thinking, okay, tell us what you would do. Travel ban, yes or no? You want more ventilators, yes or no? It didn't really help much. You want more testing, yes or no? You would have got a vaccine not in probably December, but when? May? Explain how. Oh, you've lost so many. You really do believe the Chinese or the Indian or the Russian figures on fatalities to the virus? So we're doing better or worse deaths per million compared to what? Spain, Italy, Belgium. Tell us which one. UK. And there's no detail there because for all of Donald Trump's bluster, and that's his tra- he's done a very good job. And that's his tragedy because on that debate stage, the so-called sober judicious Gramps, that was Biden, was really the emissary for a radical, nihilistic, anarchic message. And the rabble-rousing guy right out of a play of Aristophanes, he reminded me of the sausage seller in the Knights. Boy, he was the he was raucous and stuff, but he was actually the defender of, of sex, successful economic and foreign policy. And I don't think that came across like it should. You've been listening to the Classicist Podcast with Victor Davis Hansen. Remember, you can read all of Victor's work at victorhansen.com, and he's on Twitter at VD Hansen. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Victor Davis Hansen, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.